Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Coronapod. In this show, we're going to bring you nature's take on the latest COVID-19 developments. And we'll be speaking to experts around the world about research during the pandemic. I really don't know how this plays out. We also don't know a ton about this, you know, virus. So there's so many open questions. I just have a really hard time making predictions because I don't know how the outbreak's going to change. Welcome to episode 14 of Coronapod. I'm Benjamin Thompson, back once again in the South London basement. And, uh, well, I say episode 14. That's, I think that's kind of a guess from me. But I'm hoping that uh, Noah Baker or Amy Maxman, who are joining me here today, will be able to uh, to help me out on a bit. Indeed, episode 14 is the number. So you haven't been here for a couple of episodes, but we're glad you're back now. And we can hear the news from the South London basement, <laughs> which we have been so sorely missing. <laughs> and, uh, and how are you both doing? I'm doing well. Yeah, I'm all right too, actually. Well, no, as you say, I've been off for a few weeks and uh, it does seem to me that things have shifted. Yeah, I would say it's pretty unnerving here in the US right now. I was in Berkeley and now I'm in Boston, Massachusetts, and a lot of people are coming out and gathering and getting together. You know, bars are open and restaurants are beginning to open, at least outdoors. And more worrisome is it doesn't seem to me that when states are opening up, they're doing so because we have this system in place and rates have been going down for, say, three weeks. So we feel confident that the virus is going down. It's not sort of an evidence-based opening up. And it's become extremely political in the U.S. with people refusing to wear a mask, you know, for freedom's sake and completely disregarding the health of the people around them, which is just sort of perplexing and disturbing on a different level because do they not have loved ones, or maybe they just don't believe that this spreads. I'm not really sure. So that's what's going on in my country. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned politics. Later on in the show, we actually have a piece that's all about how politics can get a little bit entwined with science and how data being reported gets massaged in different places, in particular looking at the way that the CDC's numbers for things like testing don't necessarily align with numbers that the states have been reporting and why that might be. There's a lot to dig into there, especially in the States, but also all over the world. I don't know if you want to just jump into it, but just before the podcast, I got off of the phone with the person who was heading Liberia's Ebola response. I'm not sure if I should just jump in, but he's now in the US. So his perspective is kind of interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Go for it, Amy. Sure. So I was talking to Tolbert Nienswa. 
And he was the head of the Ebola response in Liberia. And since then, the government changed hands. And so he now is a public health expert at John Hopkins University. And I asked, you know, what's it like to have gone through the Ebola response and then now be in the U.S.? And he was just saying he's just completely shocked. The reason why he's shocked is because in Liberia during Ebola, and this happens in a lot of, you know, countries where the U.S. does have some development work, there are CDC people. So he's used to working with the CDC like during Ebola and during Ebola, the CDC representatives were very much on top of saying like what you do is you have like an emergency operations center and what are the pillars of the response? Like one of them is going to be testing in lab networks. Another is going to be contact tracing. Another is going to be making sure that supply chains work well to get biomedical supplies. So CDC was very instrumental and in really helping to push these kind of systems, including contact tracing. So he was really surprised to be here and see that suddenly actually the CDC is not really leading the response here and that this whole management system that really includes contact tracing as a cornerstone for containing an outbreak just wasn't happening in the U.S. So he and his colleagues at John Hopkins have actually spent time establishing a program for contact tracing at John Hopkins to teach Americans how to contact trace and kind of why it's important. The reason being is rather than treating everyone like they're infected, meaning they can't go out, and that's why we have social distancing, which is economically devastating, you know, this is a direct way to contain transmission. So anyway, since since May, he's been running a course. And right now he's had almost 400,000 people enroll. Of course, it's online like everything else. And it's not just students that are enrolling. It's also been people that want to do contact tracing, people from health departments across the U.S. Anyways, it was really interesting to kind of just hear his sort of surprise that this country that they had kind of looked up to for testing and contact tracing is really having such a hard time. My mind boggles hearing that. So let me just get this right. So the CDC helps to inform contact tracing efforts and and ways to try to control the Ebola outbreak. And then representative from that country comes back to the US and is now teaching how to control an outbreak and how to do contact tracing to people in the US based on the advice they got from the US, which the US is now not doing. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much right. The other thing they've learned a lot about is communication is one of those pillars I've talked about. So communication is known to be really key in an outbreak. You have to give people really clear messages. You know, the scientists can kind of debate the ins and outs, but people have to have some kind of clear sense of what they're doing, why they're doing it, why it's important that they do it. And so that's like a really big pillar of public health response. And so he's also really surprised here to see that the CDC is really quiet in this outbreak. They occasionally put out reports and there's not really clear messages. You know, as much as I'm annoyed by people who refuse to wear masks, part of me is a little bit forgiving because there's leaders at the top saying you don't need to wear masks. So it is really confusing here. In many African countries, it seems that the COVID-19 outbreak has been relatively slow to start, um, perhaps in some cases as a result of these pillars being in existence. But it does seem like things are speeding up. Are are you getting a sense of that in, in the people you've spoken to? Yeah, my preference is sometimes to sort of limit things to at least countries or regions because 
countries can be vastly different. So for this particular story, I'm really kind of focusing on Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra Leone, the three countries that were hit hard by the Ebola outbreak in 2014 to 2016. They're some of the poorest countries in sub-Saharan Africa and therefore in the world. They don't have a ton of international travel, which makes them different from, say, Kenya or South Africa or Nigeria. So there's not a lot of international travel. So anyways, yeah, they were hit slower. Like It seems like it only started at the end of March there. A lot of that's because there's not a lot of international travel. Also, as soon as it was clear that coronavirus was going to be a problem, the same people who were leading the response to Ebola, a lot of them are still in those countries. And they have these emergency operation centers or situation rooms, there's different names, incident management systems. Basically, they've set up satellites around the country to report back to one central place where every day that group meets, assesses what's going on and makes evidence-based policy decisions. So they did that really well in the beginning. They restricted travel. By the end of February, they already had these WHO testing kits. So they set up their ability to do diagnostics before the U.S. did, and they began to try and set up the same laboratory networks they had used during Ebola to be able to ship samples and get them tested. So they set that up. The other thing that they decided is seeing very early on that lockdown was going to be really hard there because people are really poor. So if they can't sell the food that they farmed in a market, they may not be eating. So Seeing that that was going to be an issue, they also did a lot of stuff for quarantining. They decided, all right, even if people aren't in need of treatment, how can we separate them from the community? So in Sierra Leone, they've set up care centers. So anyone who's positive, even if they don't have symptoms, they're supposed to go and stay in these care centers. So that's something they wanted to do that's also really different from the U.S. They thought that was a, a simpler way to do it because you can't expect people who live in a informal housing with one latrine for a whole community, they're not going to be able to isolate well. So this way you kind of separate those people. How successful has that approach been? Well, not super successful. I mean, they're trying to do it, but so far I've been talking with people. And again, it's, you know, all these people I've met during the Ebola outbreak, and they were telling me there's a lot of tough things here. Okay. One, Liberia and Sierra Leone, I haven't spoken to people in Guinea just yet. They've been having a hard time getting supplies right now. Two things. One, during Ebola, there was a ton of aid money that became available. There were a lot of donations. Now they're getting almost nothing. Every country is dealing with their own outbreak. There's not a lot of assistance coming. So they're out of basic supplies like beds. So they're lacking beds. They're lacking chlorine. So I heard, you know, in Sierra Leone, they have these care centers, but people are mad because they're not well cleaned. There's not enough chlorine to clean them. And then in the treatment centers, they're out of a lot of like even basic drugs, like people come in because of COVID, but if they have sepsis, there's not antibiotics to treat them. So this sort of separation thing is getting difficult because of a lack of supplies and also a lack of money to pay people who would work there. So that's tricky. The other thing is there is a lot of community pushback. From what I heard from my sources, even though there was some misbelief or people didn't really believe so much in Ebola or they just didn't want to come to treatment centers during Ebola, that's even stronger during COVID. And what my sources were saying was it's probably because COVID isn't as dramatic as Ebola. Ebola is extremely deadly. We know, you know, upwards of say 60% mortality. And also it's a very gory death, whereas COVID is much more subtle. And also because most people don't have severe disease, there's not a real motivation to separate from your family during it. You know, in Liberia, Sierra Leone, but I also heard this from people in Kenya and people I talked to in Nigeria. I think there's some perception in the beginning, it seemed like COVID was a rich person's disease. Here it is wreaking havoc in the U.S., 
And the people that seem to have it first in some of these countries are people who travel, who can afford plane tickets. So the thought is it's really confined to those people. And of course, that's not going to be the case for long. So a big fear is it's slowly trickling to lots of people. It's spreading across. It's now in, you know, across the country in these places. And numbers are really going up. If numbers are going up, then, Amy, how are these countries going to respond, do you think? And they're basically going to try doing the same things. I think a lot of this middle game, you know, you've got the beginning game where you try and not get the disease in the country and you've got the end game, which is the vaccine. But there's this middle time where you're just scaling up the basic public health responses. That's what the U.S. has been really struggling to do. And that's what all countries are trying to do right now is how do you scale up these basic things? So they're going to scale up the basic things. But then also as far as what happens within hospitals, that's been the real fear because these are really low resource settings. For example, even when I started reporting, the basic measure for how ready is a country for this, you ask them, how many ventilators do you have? Now, Sierra Leone had no ventilators, but then Jack Ma, the Chinese billionaire, donated a lot of ventilators to Sierra Leone. Well, that sounds great, but what I heard is actually none of them have been used yet because it turns out there's no intensive care units. So there's no ICUs there. People don't have training to use them. You also, I guess, need to sedate patients to use them. There's a lot that goes into using a ventilator. So even though the machines themselves are there, that's not really a thing that they can make use of. I talked to a head nurse that I spent a lot of time with during the Ebola outbreak, and he was just really upset to say that the same problems are there. They've got the leftover PPE, protective gear they had from Ebola, that they're you know still reusing those gloves and everything from five years ago now. So they've got that, but it's not enough. And very clear in his mind is how many colleagues he lost during Ebola, so they're scared. A lot of the nurses, and I talked to an ambulance driver, have decided to just not, they're not going to risk their lives again for this. They remember how deadly it was. And also there's a lack of pay, which is a constant problem there. So they're not being paid. So the hospitals are in some trouble right now. While you're talking about this response, I can't help but sort of divide countries or area in the world or responses into kind of some broad categories in my head. So, you know, you look at a lot of East Asian countries and they reacted very quickly and very powerfully following this sort of century old playbook for epidemic control, contact trace tests, so on and so on. And then you look at countries like the States or the UK or a couple of other countries who didn't follow these sort of basic tenets straight away, but they had resources they could use. They just used their resources in a different way and then they had a different outbreak. And then I, I listened to you talk about countries like Guinea and Sierra Leone and Liberia, and they're following that playbook straight away, very early on, very aggressively. They tried to do all they could, but the difference is they didn't have maybe the resource of Singapore or Hong Kong. And now they're in a position where, I guess my final question is, is the problem here, is it just resource? Like, is it fundamentally they've just hit a wall? There's, there's only so much kind of clever planning and, and following evidence and scientific advice you can do. At one point, you just need enough money to buy enough ventilators or to pay for enough staff, or whatever. It feels like they've done everything right, basically. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's ex- I think that's a fair thing to say. I think resources is a huge problem. The good thing is that some of these preventative measures could work. Like this idea of the care centers is really smart, actually. If communities can be convinced that they should go to these places and that this is real and they should wear a mask, those things are free. So if they could succeed there, that would be hugely helpful. And maybe they'll be able to, you know, I I asked this question and it wasn't really, you know, the person I was like, you didn't get it at first. Uh, And I was like, well, is leadership on board with wearing face masks? And he was like, what? And I was like, yeah, like, you know, are all of the, you know, your governors or all of your leaders saying you should wear face masks? And he was like, of course they are. (laughs) So 
at least there's that. Again, in the US, we don't have that. Yeah, I mean, there's always been this thing that people have said about how a lot of the East Asian countries responded quickly and were able to because they, you know, still have the very, very real and recent memory of SARS in the back of their head. They, you know, they went through that. And so they remember the epidemic, they knew how to react. And I guess you could say the same about, you know, Sierra Leone, Liberia, they have the very recent and very real memory of Ebola in their heads. And maybe that's what the US and the UK doesn't really have as close to it, because it didn't happen in that way in those countries. But you kind of want to just be like, hey, look at them. It's a thing, right? Look at they still went through that. And you've got the internet, you can still see it. (laughs) It's totally true. It's true, right? That might be why you know, there wasn't a debate from their politicians like, I don't know, maybe we should do our own different model instead of, you know, just going ahead and responding to this. (laughs) Maybe a bit of good news is I talked to one of the doctors in the capital of Sierra Leone, and he was saying he's actually been using dexamethasone. They actually have access to dexamethasone. And he's been saying for the people who have severe cases, he feels like it's really been working. So he was just delighted to see the recovery trial results that came out this week. Um, because they kind of confirm what he thinks he's been seeing in his patients. So Amy, you mentioned dexamethasone, and that's the second thing we're going to talk about today. And it seems like a pretty good news story. This is a very common drug, dexamethasone. It's a, it's a steroid used to treat things like rheumatoid arthritis or asthma and what have you. What have we got going on here both? Yeah, so it is great news. It does not mean there's a cure. However, in this study in the UK with 2,100 people, and it's a controlled clinical trial, What they found is that dexamethasone, which is a steroid, it reduced deaths of patients who were on ventilators by a third, and it reduced the death of people who were on oxygen by a fifth. Of course, in a place like Sierra Leone, people aren't on ventilators, but the reason why here we're saying oxygen and ventilators is because that means they have very bad COVID. I have to say that when I heard this, it was, I mean, I'm going to spoiler alert everyone, this is my one good thing for this week. It was really wonderful to read because there have been drugs trials that have come out. You know, we talked about remdesivir, for example, on the podcast, but that didn't actually reduce deaths. The first trials showed that it shortened time in hospital or time in intensive care, but it didn't reduce deaths. And then there's been a lot of discussion about hydroxychloroquine, which we don't really need to bore podcast listeners with, with even more. But this time, this was a controlled study, a randomized controlled study that showed a big effect in reducing mortality. And I feel like we have been overdue a bit of good news from a therapeutic. Also, it's great for so many reasons. Like, you know, just talking about Sierra Leone, actually remdesivir would be quite hard to administer in some places because you have to do infusions over a period of time. And that's hard in a low resource setting. And also remdesivir is a new drug. It's going to be patented. We're going to have to work out how we're going to license the drug. It's like we have to work up scaling at manufacturing, whereas dexamethasone is a pretty widespread until hopefully it doesn't get bought out somewhere. But it's a, you know, a drug that's off patent. It's a steroid. It's just a pill. You can use this in places that are low resource. I talked to a nurse in a rural part of Sierra Leone. They're getting this shipped to them so they can actually use this for people who are really sick. So it it is great news in that way. Yeah, I think one of the most important things is dexamethasone is cheap as well, right? I mean, it's been in use, as you say, since the early 1960s. It does have side effects, but it does seem to be making a difference. But I mean, I don't mean to sort of dampen this good news too much, but I will have to say that from what I understand, these results haven't been peer reviewed yet. And I think given that all that's gone on over the past few weeks, I think we need to be a little bit cautious there. But certainly the UK government has thrown their weight behind it. They're, they're very excited. They've you know got a bunch of doses. They reckon that if there's a second peak, they've got enough to cope with it there. So it seems like people really are 
behind this as a potential treatment. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, I think rightly, a lot of people are saying, hey, listen, at this point, can we please see the data? (laughs) A press release isn't enough. I mean, I guess my thought is maybe because the recovery trial ended early, you know, maybe they felt they had to announce why it was ending early because these were good results. But yes, I think everybody's anxious to see the actual data and to dig into it a little bit. The WHO announced that they're going to be coordinating a meta-analysis so that anybody who has any results from dexamethasone can send it to them and they're going to try and analyze it and come up with some guidances on how to use the drug. Absolutely. And I guess there are some other reasons to be slightly optimistic this time. I think I agree with both of you that we need to see this data and, you know, really pick into it as recent events have clarified. But, you know, this is a randomized control trial, not an observational study. That's a step up. They have been very explicit about how this data will be shared before we have had situations where the data was explicitly never going to be shared and we had to just lump that. So, you know, the the sign, the signals are pointing in the right direction this time for people to be more confident, which is nice. Yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, what it does is we know, you know, as we talked about it on a coronapod at some point, we know that one of the reasons why people might be dying from the coronavirus is an inflammatory response, an extreme inflammatory response, a cytokine storm, and steroids dampen an immune response. So it kind of also makes sense why this could be happening. So there's also that added level. That's also why it makes sense that it wouldn't be helpful if you just have moderate disease. So if you just have the virus, but your immune system is in an overdrive, you don't want to take this drug. There's a quote in the story that was written by our colleague Heidi Ledford, and it's a quote from Martin Landry, which I think really brings home why this could be such an exciting thing because of how cheap and available this is. And the quote was, for less than £50, you can treat eight patients with dexamethasone and save one life based on these statistics. That's a really good way of putting this into perspective. You know, for a drug, that's a big deal, I suppose. I mean, this is a good thing. And you're right, to, I think, to choose that as your one good thing this week. Um, Amy, how about you? What, what else have you got for your one good thing from the past seven days? Well, I decided to just add in something I just now found out. You know, my dad's in the hospital and he needs a bone marrow transplant. And I just found out they found two matches in the US. But I was worried, who's going to go to the hospital for this sort of not minor procedure of donating bone marrow in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic? And it turns out that both of those anonymous people, no idea who they are, have both agreed to donate, which I find really amazing and awesome and something that sort of restores my hope in humanity for a little while. Oh, I honestly feel quite emotional about that. That's really amazing. Do you know what? That's Yeah, that's that's not a good thing. That is a wonderful thing. It's really beautiful. Well, I mean, that that really kind of sets me up then for me being super flippant with my one good thing and making me look a bit daft. So I've had a few weeks off on family leave, and there's been a few things that I've really enjoyed. And one of them, Amy, actually speaks to something you mentioned a few weeks ago, which is going on really, really long walks, which is is kind of difficult when you have a small baby and there are no public lavatories or you can't nip into a pub and use a, a bathroom there. But there's a thing called the Capital Ring, which is a loop of London in different stages, and you can walk around and it tries to link up all the parks. And we've been doing a few stages of that because it turns out our house is actually on one of the roads that is a route. So it's been nice to just stroll around a bit, you know, and, and obviously the city's a bit quieter now. And, and so it's been nice to feel the earth spinning under my feet for a few weeks. That is good. Absolutely. I need to find a new walk. Yeah, you've got a whole load more walks to explore on the East Coast now. So many more neighbourhoods to, to snoop around and see what what's going on there. <laughs> exactly. So many places to snoop around. Uh, if you'll allow me a, a second good thing. Um, my friends have been calling it a midlife crisis. That's very mean of them. I bought a skateboard. I thought, you know what? 
it's really quiet here. I can, you know, skip around the neighborhood and, you know, go and I bought some pizza and picked it up the other day. And it's been nice because you can't think about anything else rather than don't fall off. I mean, stakes are high because if you fall off, you have to admit to people that you broke your arm trying to skateboard. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I'm ready for that conversation. <laughs> Well, let's leave it there then, both. It's good to be back for episode 14 of Coronapod. I hope you'll both join me next week for episode 15. Amy and Noah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks very much, Ben. Next up, throughout this pandemic, we've all become quite accustomed to regular doses of model projections, graphs and data. But all of these numbers aren't always as clear or accurate as we might think. Reporter Nick Howe has been investigating. Numbers don't lie. So goes the oft-repeated phrase. I mean, how could they? They're simply human-contrived constructs designed to measure or count things. But in reality, it would be naive to think that simply the presence of numbers somehow adds certainty or validity to a point. And during this pandemic, there has been no shortage of data, statistics, models and, well, numbers to be had. But despite the multitudes of measures, it's proven quite difficult to get a solid idea of what has happened, or in the case of models, what might. In the next 12 minutes, I'm going to dip into three places that numbers may well in fact lie. During my reporting, it became clear to me that often, the more you get stuck into these numbers, the stickier they get. Be that counting death, counting testing, or modelling outcomes, it turns out none are as simple as they may seem. First, counting Covid deaths. On the face of it, what is more final and certain than that? Yeah, you would think that to put it really crudely, counting the bodies would be fairly straightforward, but it's not. This is David Spiegelhalter. He's a statistician who has been digging into the UK-based coronavirus data. The government reports data when they've died from COVID and they've been tested positive, and that's what's reported. But many of the people who die, another sort of 20, 20% or so, 25%, won't have been tested and, and yet will have COVID on the death certificate. People might say, oh, well, is this, have they died with it or of it? Well, nearly all those, COVID will be mentioned as a contributory cause. So at least that it's accelerated the death, it's been a partial cause of their death. Even with a positive test, it can prove difficult to determine that the coronavirus was the cause of or a contributor to death. Without one, well, doctors use judgment based on the symptoms the patient experienced prior to death. A good approximation, but hardly a black and white distinction. What's more, the exact mechanism of determining whether a death was due to COVID varies between countries, and inevitably some of the deaths caused by the disease are missed. As a result, many people have argued that a better measure is to look at the excess deaths, the number of extra deaths above a predetermined normal baseline. But this comes with its own problems. It's not clear what we should use as that baseline. And often a five-year average is taken, but that's not necessarily appropriate. Maybe we should use what the we would think the rate would have been if the virus hadn't happened. And in fact, earlier this year, 
death rates were very low. It's a mild winter, uh, very little flu, and so that would change the number of deaths we would have expected. Regardless of which baseline you choose, these analyses often come up with higher totals for deaths than those directly reported as COVID deaths. It just provokes more and more questions being asked about what's actually happened during this epidemic, and it's very complex indeed in terms of deaths, um, being exported from hospital. People have not been going to hospital, either from home or care homes. So they, they're huge, they're large numbers extra have died at home and in care homes than you would have expected, not all due to COVID. In fact, the majority of the excess deaths at homes not had COVID on the death certificate. There have been people who would, we presume, would have generally died in the hospital. Um, but we also must presume there's some people who would have not died if they'd gone to hospital. Um, and trying to quantify that, which is essentially the collateral damage of the, uh, of the lockdown, is extremely difficult to do. Deaths are not the only place where there's been some confusion surrounding the actual numbers. Testing numbers, too, have proven to be fraught. A clear example is in the United States. For much of the pandemic, each state published its testing data independently. And then in May, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention started publishing testing data for the entire US. But the state numbers and the CDC numbers didn't add up. We were stunned. I mean, I think epidemiologists across the country all audibly gasped because it's just so unfathomably different. This is Jessica Malato Rivera. She's part of the COVID Tracking Project, a volunteer organisation that's been collecting and tracking coronavirus testing data in the US. The project started before the CDC began publishing countrywide data. Jessica and her team instead assembled the data from individual states and published it to give a national picture. This was supposed to be a stopgap until the CDC did start publishing federal data, at which point the project could wrap up. That's not what happened. Some of those states were diverging by up to 25% or more, which is extremely concerning considering how, you know, especially percent positive rates is what's making states feel more or less comfortable with next steps. The CDC was significantly underreporting and in many cases overreporting some crucial data like the number of tests conducted when compared to data from the states themselves. Now, some differences are to be expected between datasets. Collection of large amounts of data is hard at the best of times, not least in a pandemic. But for 13 of the states, there was more than a 25% divergence. That's a disparity that is too big to reconcile simply by pointing to methodological differences or the difficulties of data collection. So what is going on? So we were worried that the numbers were too simple in the sense that they were not separating things like people and specimen. But then we were concerned, this was kind of a nagging feeling that maybe they're combining the PCR tests, which is the test that you have for the virus and serology tests, which is the test you have for antibodies. And then we learned that the CDC was not just doing this, but they were instructing states to do this. And we observed several states doing this And that was really what was the most baffling part of this data mixing, because what that was doing is dramatically reducing the percent positive rate, creating a very distorted reality of what was really going on and giving people, state officials particularly, false hope that the new infections were dropping. 
Typically, mixing data like this is a no-no for data scientists and epidemiologists as they're not actually measuring the same thing. Combining them can give an unrealistic idea of what is actually going on. The CDC confirmed to the COVID tracking project that indeed it was combining data from the two types of test. I reached out to the CDC and a spokesperson told me that this was because at the start of the pandemic, the PCR tests were just far more prevalent. But the agency confirmed that it is hoping to separate these kinds of data in the next few weeks. For Jessica, she's concerned that politics are influencing the data sets. Pandemics are inherently political, right? And I think that there's no doubt going to be politics at play, especially when we're talking about economies being majorly disrupted. But, you know, we've also seen data being misused in order to justify certain decisions. And that's really problematic. This isn't just a problem in the USA. The UK government stopped even reporting the number of people tested for the coronavirus outside hospitals and care homes after statisticians accused them of misleading the public by mixing data and, in some cases, double-counting tests. And all of this can have very real consequences. Whilst coronavirus cases in several states continue to fall, even with more testing, there are now concerns that cases are starting to climb again in many parts of the US, perhaps due to a lessening of restrictions. It's possible that the sometimes inflated numbers of tests have given states a false sense of confidence. Something Jessica said stuck with me. Pandemics are inherently political, right? It is a concern that many people have when thinking about good old objective science. But you can't really escape the reality that, now more than ever, politics and research are intertwined. Models which we've come to rely on to plan public health responses are just as politically vulnerable. Surely the models are politicized. Uh, you know, it's, it's because we, we use mathematical models to justify policy. So it's not surprising that they become uh, very rapidly politicized. This is Andrea Saltelli, a researcher who works at the intersection of mathematical models and policy. The more science participates to the policy process, the more science is justified the more it is politicized. I mean, mix the example of Italy now. Our uh, premier now is uh, answering questions of judges on why he took certain decisions on Lombardia, closing or not closing certain hot areas sooner. And he defended himself saying, you know, I did this based on scientific advice. So you really see now that the, the fate of a prime minister may hold on balance on how well he can show that he has been following scientific advice. So clearly, in circumstances like this, to expect science to, to be neutral is, is very hard. I mean, you know, it's a kind of a dangerous illusion. Andrea says models are subject to the biases of their creators and that they can be used as political weapons, brandished to support predetermined agendas. For him, assuming a model is politically neutral is naive. The solution, according to Andrea is transparency. Transparency, and in a sense, replicability is very important, but this is not the end of the story. If you want to be transparent about the way mathematical model is done, it's not only a matter of making the software available, but there are other information which comes into play. Who developed this model? Who paid for it? But also, what are the motivations of the developer? What are their disciplinary biases? How can we stress test what they have done did they hide some important assumption which they have made? And if you wish, at the end of the day, what vision of the world 
is uh, embedded into some particular mathematical representation. Researchers, and journalists for that matter, do go some way to answering some of these questions. Peer review both before and after research is published can help to iron out biases, and journalists are always eager to point out conflicts and limitations. But in Andrea's view, the problems run still deeper. He's also concerned about how a model's results are communicated by its creators. There has been a tendency for a model to be over-assertive, that is, to be over-certain of what where they were communicating. Also, in terms of giving numbers which appeared suspiciously precise. Andrea pointed to the high-profile model from Imperial College London. Back in March, it was widely reported that, according to this model, 510,000 people would die in the UK from the virus, if no further action was taken. Now, according to the author's own uncertainty analysis, the true number predicted by these models was actually somewhere between 410,000 and 550,000. And according to Andrea, it's likely the true uncertainty was even higher than this. I mean, many people say, come on, the Imperial College made this estimate. Maybe it was rough, but it was good because it uh, told policymakers that they had to act. Okay, so it was good. It was useful. But then I say, if they had said one million instead of half a million, this would also have pushed policymakers to act. So I'm not discussing the action taken by the policymaker, but if modeling has to have a sense... These numbers must have a meaning, otherwise we fall into pure consequentialism, whereby a model which, uh, you know, uh, generates whatever kind of desired behaviour is correct. The solution for Andrea is to be open and honest about the uncertainty. A model is only ever a simplified view based on imperfect data. Nobody should expect them to be perfectly accurate, but they can be useful. They just need to clearly state their uncertainty. To do otherwise can damage trust. For example, as much as people complain when they are wrong, nobody really expects a weather forecast to show absolute certainty. In reality, we're used to working with a margin of error. But that doesn't mean we don't still use them to help us plan picnics and to decide whether or not to take an umbrella with us to work. Numbers, data, statistics and models have become part of the essential language of this pandemic, but it is clear that they are not gospel. Whilst at its heart it is true that the numbers themselves don't lie, the people that use them can, and we mustn't forget that. The next time you are presented with a simple statistic, remember that it may be very useful, but it's a safe bet that it is certainly not straightforward, and straightforwardly not certain. That was Nick Howe. You also heard from David Spiegelhalter, a director of the UK Statistics Authority, Jessica Malate-Rivera from the COVID Tracking Project, and Andrea Saltelli from the University of Bergen. That's it for another edition of Coronapod. We're back again next week, and in the meantime, look out for a corona-free edition of the Regular Nature podcast on Wednesday. In the meantime, you can get in touch with us on Twitter, we're at Nature Podcast, or email podcast at nature.com I've been Benjamin Thompson thanks for listening, stay safe Hey 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.